Welcome to the Uncharted Podcast. I am your host, Inez Franklin. My hope for you today is that we discover faith beyond the boundaries. Uncharted is intended to be a safe place for you to listen, learn, and challenge yourself along your journey of faith. May grace and peace be with you today. Welcome to the show. Hello, folks. Welcome again to Uncharted with Ines Franklin. Today, you're going to get to meet my friend Scott Sauls. He is the senior pastor of Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville. I've known Scott for quite a few years, and I have so much respect for him. He's a deeply humble man, a great thinker, a deep thinker, and he's written quite a few books that I would recommend you check out. Um, Jesus Outside the Line, From Weakness to Strength, A Gentle Answer, which is a great book about civil discourse, and he's about to come up uh, with a new book, which he talks about on this podcast, Beautiful People Don't Just Happen. It's a beautiful book about the restoration that God can do in our lives. And what's really wonderful is he's going to tell more about his story, which I'm very excited about because he has a really powerful story and testimony about the way that God has worked in his life. So I am excited for you to meet him. Again, thank you for joining us for today's podcast, and let's give it a listen. Scott, thank you for being with us today. We're really grateful to have you. Always a pleasure to be with you, Ines. Thanks for inviting me. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. And for you giving us our time. Folks, we are recording this just before Scott does the Christmas services. This is a big deal (laughs) as you prepare. So we're not only going to have a conversation, but believe me, I want to pray for you as well as you prepare to deliver such powerful good news to to people. So thank thank you. you for all that you do. We know we've been talking about the uncharted journey of faith now for a while with a lot of our our listeners and some of the interviewers. And what I find interesting is a lot of times people talk about their transformation journey. Uh, that's common to hear, but a lot of times we don't talk about like the journey, the whole of the journey, not just that mm-hmm. that moment in time when we made a transformation, but but the mm-hmm. whole journey of faith. And that was is like now it may sound like it's going to be a really long story, but I think you can tell mm-hmm. it in such a way to give us a picture of of your journey and how, in a way, it's somewhat uncharted, right? That we think it's formulaic, but maybe it's not really. So can you tell us about your journey of faith, kind of how it started and where it's been, where it's going? Sure, sure. Thanks, Ines. So um, so I guess I'll, I'll, I'll say that uh, I grew up maybe kind of as an Ecclesiastes kid, right? Um, part of... I guess a, a community that looks really together and like you have everything, and in many ways we did. I, you know, I grew up with with a lot of things provided for me, um, all the good and all the hard that goes along with that. Right. So there's this uh, there's this book by a woman named Madeline Levine. She's a, a psychiatrist who serves uh, especially. Uh, teenage population. And her uh, book is called The Price of Privilege. And she works especially with teenagers in the San Francisco Bay Area from very affluent communities. And uh, part of her research led her to discover that, um, that teenagers from affluent areas are 
three times more likely than the national average to experience anxiety and depression, uh, to uh, experience thoughts of, of self-harm, uh, and all the rest. And so, so I would say that that in some ways describes my upbringing where everything looked good on the outside, but I was kind of dying on the inside and had this, you know, just strange, mysterious sense in me that there's got to be something more than this. Uh, I felt bad about myself because I didn't feel happy uh, with all the the stuff that that was availed to me in my in my upbringing. And then I went off to college and yeah, you know, just experienced more of that, you know, uh, kind of poured myself into trying to be successful as a student and as an athlete and all of that and experienced, you know, some, some good success there, but, but, but still had that nagging sense of, of being dissatisfied. And, and that was never resolved until my senior year of college when uh, a group of friends uh, invited me into a you know, a campus fellowship and to church with them. And I heard the message of Christ in a very vivid, very relevant way for people like me. And, and that's where everything clicked that, that, um, you know, meaning and purpose and, you know, sustainable joy can only be found uh, by being connected relationally with our creator and uh, to have, you know, that nagging sense of guilt and shame that we all carry around with us resolved in this very, you know, vivid personal way by the finished work of Christ. And, and um, you know, so that's really where the, the journey with Christ for me began was through the avenue of being very dissatisfied with things that people think should satisfy you. Uh, and you know, to this day, the most relatable book in the Bible for me is Ecclesiastes, where you have this man who is on top of the world by every, by every measure. And, and yet he says, you know, everything's meaningless. And, 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 you know, all of this is, he says, it's vapor, you know, the, the, the good things that this life provides are so temporary that, that he describes them as, as, like there's smoke, right? They, they, yeah. it, vapor is something that, that poofs. You can't hold on to it. It's going to slip out of your fingertips, right? And, you know, any form of happy, happiness that doesn't have its source and destination in, in God, uh, will, that will be the experience of it. And so, so I came to Christ really through that existential crisis, right? And, and some people introducing me to Christ as the, the answer to that. And so, you know, ever since then, I, you know, I started pursuing a life in the ministry pretty much from the get-go when I, when I met Christ. You did. So it, it, it was receiving that message and saying, okay, I'm going to pursue this be, be yeah. as a career. <laughs> yeah. And the crazy thing about it, Ines, was I was terrified of public speaking. And, you know, I was, I was, I was, a, I was a good student, all the way growing up, except in three subjects, driver's ed. Uh, I was so nervous that I ran stop signs and, you know, got bad grades because of that. Um, <laughs> the, and the other two subjects that I, that I just did really poorly in are the things that I do professionally now, uh, writing wow. and speaking. <laughs> and, Isn't that and so amazing? This, this is the, the sense of humor that God has, I suppose. But, but, you know, and, and, and when I, 
kind of started that path toward the ministry, those two things hadn't resolved, right? I was still just, I got writer's block every time I tried to write, and, and I, I was terrified of speaking in front of people. And um, over time, the Lord worked that out. But, um, you know, thankful looking back, that was about, that was 34 years ago uh, when all that happened. So so I, I couldn't be more grateful for the life that God's given me since. Um, That's amazing. So before you heard the gospel expressed in this way, had you grown up in any kind of a Christian background or anything? No, actually, my 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 father was a bit disappointed uh, in in my newfound faith, and um, that's not to disparage my father as much as it is to highlight that he was one of those people that had a very bad church experience growing up. Um, you could say that he, he grew up with some church hurt. You know, there's a lot of talk these days about church hurt. And, um, you know, this is a very... It's been going on for a while. Yeah. It's not it a new has, thing. you know. And, um, and, and so, so, yeah, it was a very legalistic, shaming kind of, you know, introduction to God, which, which really is an indication that he wasn't really introduced <laughs> to, to who God really is, if that's, that's the picture that he got. Um, but he just, you know, he left home and went off to college and said, you know, that's not for me. And, and so, you know, uh, he was comfortable with me, you know, being a little bit religious. But when, when I started talking about, you know, a life in ministry, that's when he got really nervous. Like, wait and a minute. My mom was afraid that I was going to be poor. And, you know, they have just had this whole image. Um, but ever since then, you know, that's, that's all been resolved and, you know, they're, they're thankful that that I've taken the path that I've taken, and you know, married the person that I married, and I'm in the life that I'm in, and the calling that I'm in. But but um, but yeah, didn't grow up with, uh, you know, I grew up with the opposite of of you know, church and God and everything else. Yeah, awesome. Now, how has like that upbringing, having that church heard from your father? I mean. To go from that, seeing your dad experience that pain, to you being now a pastor of a church, right? Um, how did that inform the way that you pastor, the way that you lead a church? Oh, thank you. That's a great question. I mean, our stories always shape the way we respond to people around us, don't they? Um, I, I think that it's it's made me, you know, especially sensitive to to people who you know, look like they have it together, but they're dying inside. You know, Thoreau, Thoreau talks about how the mass of the mass of men lead quiet lives of desperation, Thoreau said. Uh, and that, of course, includes men and women and kids, uh, per Madeline Levine's research. And so, you know, God's always seemed to have put me in similar environments uh, to the one that I grew up in. And, you know, whether it's, you know, the the urban center of New York City with, you know, Wall Street folks and, and kind of global influencers and, and, and others. And I, I, I can remember actually that when I was there um, and I started preaching in this and, and um, yeah, I sat down with Tim Keller, who was, you know, my, my mentor at the time and um, graciously, you know, brought me onto the teaching team there. And, and, um, I just remember talking to him how intimidating it felt to me to to preach to all of these really successful people, some of them really well known, 
um, most of them with, with, you know, degrees from universities that I wouldn't have been able to get into, you know, coming out of <laughs> yeah. high school. Yeah. Uh, cause I goofed around Not in a pedigree high school. in the room. But he says, you know, he says, here's the thing. Um, you know, you're intimidated by the fact that you're, you're in a room full of experts, but they're all here, um, because they, because they feel a need for your expertise and, you know, your expertise and my expertise is that we've found the secret of contentment. Uh, and, and, and that's the thing that plagues successful people is, is that you think, you know, like Thomas Merton, you know, said, you know, I spent my whole life, you know, climbing the ladder of success only to reach the top and realize I've been climbing up the wrong wall. And, you know, Tim said, you know, don't, don't, don't ever underestimate the power of the gospel in anyone's life. And, and that's what you're, that's what you bring is, is, is access to the secret of contentment through the message of Christ and the gospel. And so I'm like, okay. And I think really that was a turning point for me that I can have confidence, um, you know, stepping into any space where, where I am, you know, asked to talk about Christ because, the need for Christ, including the real need and the felt need for Christ, is universal. It's everywhere. It's, um, it's among the poor, uh, the material poor, uh, who are also poor in spirit because of their circumstances, as well as the materially affluent who realize that their affluence hasn't gotten them anywhere uh, on the road of happiness, on the road to happiness, that, that only Christ can do that. And so, I don't know. I, I think that experience is, has been a big you know, it was a big turning point um, of just being able to own, you know, this treasure that, that Christ has given you and has given me and us to be able to communicate it to, to people, uh, which has turned out to be one of the greatest privileges I could have ever imagined getting to be part of. Yeah. And in a way, you were so well equipped for it. You, you can see God's brilliance bringing you someone who felt like, I mean, again, it's all relative, right? You, at least you felt like you had it all and it was not enough. And those people in the room probably felt that way to whatever degree they have a lot, right? But they, you could still reach that place no matter how much you have. And that place of like, this isn't enough. And so you could speak from a place of knowledge um, and, and a heart of compassion because you, from your father, perhaps, I'm thinking that you knew how sometimes these messages can be position in such a way where they do more harm than good if it's not done well, right? Yeah, now, being that you've been on the journey of faith now, you said 35 years, 34 years? Thereabouts, yeah. It's not like we're trying to calculate your age or anything. <laughs> I'll stop doing the math. You know this. You, you turn 40, which I'm long past 40. You stop doing the math on, you know, yeah, how many years right. ago this or that was. <laughs> that's right. But, you know, you've been on this journey of faith a while. And as a pastor, you're walking with people on their journey of faith. And so hopefully you can feel comfortable sharing about your own struggles through it because, you know, I, I believe we all do. We all go through struggles. And the journey of faith isn't linear, isn't always up and perfect. There's these bumps along the way. Um, and so often we don't talk about them. So I'm curious, like, how has the journey of faith been mysterious for you? And, and where has it been? Maybe what, not what you expected. So, I mean, you... You're a pastor. You you understand this, Ines. There's certain things that they just didn't train us for in seminary. And, <laughs> a and lot. One of which was they, they didn't spend a whole lot of time, you know, teaching us how to lead. Right? They they taught us how to 
learn the Bible and to preach and emphasize the importance of integrity, which I think are the main things, uh, you know, to their credit. But they didn't, they didn't, they didn't at least back then. And I, I think it's different, like, like Fuller out, you know, closer to where you live. They do a great job, you know, training people in leadership in ways that maybe other seminaries have struggled to do so. The other thing that, that, that they didn't train us for was, was how hurtful Christians can be toward one another. Um, that, that's, that's been really, I think, probably the hardest, most mysterious thing to navigate is that, you know, again, back to Tim Keller, this is a conversation we had, you know, probably 15 years ago about, you know, why is it that, that conflict between Christians, it, it almost feels like people are more mean than, than, than they are in conflict between non-Christians. And, and, and it seems like it should be the opposite, right? It seems like um, Christian conflict should, um, should not get so ugly. And, and, and sometimes it does. And, um, and that's just not just true today. It's true in the Bible. Um, yes. you know, about, you know, Paul just in his letters talks so much about how people are biting and devouring each other. And, you know, when he writes to the young pastor, Timothy, he talks about how there are people in the churches who crave controversy and quarrels. It's not just that they have controversy. They actually want it. They're looking for it. They're Stir looking it for a fight. And I'm just like, that's one of the most mysterious things in the world, and uh, you know, of, of how people have been been loved the way that we have, and 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 we've been made aware of that love that that Christ, you know, was willing to not take offense uh, at our offenses and uh, absorb it, and yet how will unwilling we are sometimes to absorb those offenses, and and yet at the same time in a mysterious way uh, to use that word it, it it's a great reminder that that even though our love toward one another can be so fickle the love of Christ just holds it holds steady it, it never retreats it never becomes less I mean I just think about when Peter betrays Christ three times and and Peter was never less loved or less held or less kept by Christ even even at his very worst. And, and, and so, in a sense, that is the mystery that Christ never stops loving us, which is even more mysterious uh, about how, than, than it is how little we can love one another sometimes. And, and you know, that, that strange thing about Christians isn't just around me. It's also in me, in this. I mean, there, there's so many times. I, said, I was going to say the same thing. I was thinking, I sometimes feel like, Shouldn't I be further along here? 100%. I've been at this for a while. Is isn't this Holy Spirit living in me? Why do I still have this problem? Hundred so percent. I agree. Yes. And you know the beautiful thing too is when we feel that about ourselves, it probably means that on some level people are experiencing us in a better way than they used to if if we're self aware. And I, I, I hope think so. that's that's when Christians become kind. You know, the more self aware we are the more kind we are, <laughs> you know? And I, I think I think when we start, you know, kind of snipping at each other, uh, which has, you know, happened a lot in the last couple of years with COVID and politics and all that, um, I mean, it's been a lot uglier, in my opinion, inside the church in some ways than it has been outside the church, sadly. Um, but 
but but I think it's I think it has a lot more to do with amnesia than it does with anything else where we forget um you know how much we need grace and patience and kindness extended to us not just by others but by by God and and when we realize that God has come through with that for us um you know it has a humbling effect and so you know, maybe that's why Augustine, when he was asked what are the top three virtues of Christianity, he said humility, humility, and humility. And and so if we if we if we can stay in that humble place and stay low, and realize, you know, how deep the Father's love is for us because of how deep he had to deeply he had to go uh, into our mess in, tor- in order to redeem us. Hopefully, that'll keep us in that humble place, and we'll become a lot more kind. Yeah. Yeah. There are a lot of so, really amazingly kind Christians as well, as you yes, and I both know. Indeed, indeed. But obviously, one of the mysteries of the journey of faith is people themselves, ourselves and the people, right? Because we we don't operate linearly. We, we, we do meander. We do forget. We do act in a way that um, isn't really how God would want us to act or even the way that demonstrates how we are embracing the love that God has for us. And so people have a mystery, but sometimes there's a mystery in the way that God works in our lives too, right? I mean, there's a sense, I think we, we want to figure out God, we want to know him. Of course, that's a good thing on my mind. It's imperative that we seek to know him. But then when we think we have him figured out and we have him in a box and we want him to operate a certain way, it removes the mystery of God. How have you experienced a mystery of God in your journey? I mean, I can go a hundred different directions with that one, Ines, but, <laughs> you know, as I was, you know, thank you, by the way, for sending these questions, some of these questions ahead of time. Yeah, no. <laughs> but the, the one that popped into my head as I was contemplating the questions before our call is that you can take any section of scripture and you can read it 150 times and it can be just as fresh and just as new the 150th time as it was the first time because the same words it's almost like like a paragraph in scripture has an inexhaustible amount of things to to tell us as the holy spirit reveals that you know the the depth of that paragraph to us over the course of years in our lives if that makes sense um like i listen to my sermons from 20 years ago um, you know, and I just think, oh my goodness, there's so much I missed 20 years ago that, that I understand now about this one passage of scripture, which then is a great reminder that there's probably still so much I'm missing now. And, and, and so that's just part of the mystery is that there's always more to look forward to of what God is going to reveal to us and uncover to us in you know what the Bible itself calls the inexhaustible riches of of his truth. Or Paul says, right, who can know the mind of God? Yes. There's so much. Yes. It's amazing. What's your answer to that? I think it's wonderful that God's mysterious. I think I think we need to embrace it and love it because um, he, then he becomes so much bigger than everything we have here. You know, I think I think for me, and I do this. I'm not saying you know it's everyone else. I do it too. Sometimes I want God to be predictable and operate on my terms, 
and may, I may not think it exactly that way literally, but I see it in my actions. Like I'll see the way in which I am having expectations of God or how I'm showing in my disappointment or, you know, my emotions come sense reveal, oh, wow, I was having, I was having God operate under these terms instead of um, who he really is. And in so doing, we miss out on who he is, I think, right? I think that's the case when we have relationships with others. When we, when we have an expectation of how people operate, we limit our ability to grow in our knowledge of them and our intimacy with them because we stop growing. We stop discovering. Yeah, I've got a friend of mine who just said the other day, he's, we're either moving forward or moving backwards. Uh, and, you know, the more we press in and lean in to, to those, you know, places where God shows up, you know, in the scripture, in the life of the local church, in community with others who are heading in the same direction with God, um, the more we can move forward in, you know, learning, you know, and, and having these mysteries about God revealed to us over time. Yes, yes. Now you're writing a new book coming up. I'm excited. Mm-hmm. And so it's a book about transformation. So again, I'm thinking, right, if I'm understanding the cover, at least that's all I saw was the cover, which is beautiful, by the way. But in a way, it, it's, you know, transformation is this beautiful picture of something new coming out, right? Something being revealed uh, or, or, or made anew. And so, yeah, I, I feel like this is a perfect time to segment into your book. Tell us about this book and what prompted you to write it. Well, thank you, Ines. So it's already written. It's it's been in the publisher's hands for for a little while now. It it comes out uh, in early June, and the title is "Beautiful People Don't Just Happen." And uh, the subtitle probably tells the story of the book, you know, you know, better than better than the table of contents would. Um, <laughs> And the well subtitle done. is How God Redeems Regret, Hurt, and Fear in the Making of Better Humans. And so, so it's really about, it's, 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 it's about how um, God takes, you know, those, those messy, nerve-wracking, anticlimactic, disappointing aspects of being human and, and actually uses those parts of our lives as the primary theater, as the, as the primary stage where he does his best work um, in our lives, in our communities, in the world. You know, there's always some form of disappointment, disorientation, trauma, pain that that births goodness into the world. I mean, it's it's the pattern of, of Christ's life, right? Life, death, burial, resurrection, glory. And and that's that's the pattern of creation where you know we talk about the arc of redemption, creation, fall, you know, redemption, glory, etc. And um, you know, our lives are also microcosms of that. And, and so it really is an effort to encourage people to understand both about ourselves and about others that a damaged person is not a done person. Um, in fact, the beginning of fruitfulness in our lives might actually be when we feel like 
the fruitfulness of our lives is over. Uh, it actually might be the beginning. Um, and so, uh, so yeah. Um, so it's a, it's a, hopefully it's really accessible. It's probably the most personal book I've written in that. I was going to ask that. So it yeah. has your story. I get into a lot of my own story and oh, my inner, beautiful. you know, the inner workings of my heart and, you know, the messiness that's there and the, the goodness of God that, you know, works in the mess. So it's kind of my own, um, it's inspired by, I, I would never put it in the same league as, but it's inspired by, if you've ever heard a book called The Ragamuffin Gospel by Brennan Very Manning. Very much, yes, yes. So, so that book was, I, I think, what inspired me to write this kind of book. Um, and, and so it's, it's probably my, my most transparent work. And so I, I hope it'll help some people. Thank you. Thank you for your vulnerability and your willingness to, to put yourself out there like that. Um, again, as a pastor and as a leader, oftentimes, you know, sometimes it's tempting to protect ourselves, uh, because there's so much hurt that can happen when we are, when we're honest with our own journeys. And so really grateful for you sharing that. You know, when you wrote that book, obviously, since it's filtered through your own journey of faith, did you talk at all about um, God, like, he's, is he the source of some of these challenges, and therefore he makes good use of them? Is he, is he a God who doesn't waste any of these challenges? And he, um, you know, Talk about the cause and effect or, you know, that sort of thinking, because I, I do believe for some people, uh, suffering, loss, failure can often, um, can often be blamed on God, right? Um, when we say God can use these things to do the most beautiful work, then the, the natural question is, well, then did God cause this? What are your thoughts on that? Well, I mean, that's that's one of the greatest, speaking of the word mystery, it's one of the greatest mysteries in the universe, right? We've got a God who is in control of everything. He's all-powerful. He's omnipotent. And he's a God of love. And so how do we account for tragedy and pain and death and sorrow? And, of course, the theological answer to that is when sin came into the world, it it tarnished everything. It, it, it created this condition of decay for every person, every place, and everything uh, in the universe. Now, um, you know, that still begs the question, you know, who started it, all of that. And I, it's, I'm, I'm not qualified to answer that question, but, but one of the, you know, one of the scriptures that I interact with in the book is Romans 8, 28, which is often used as kind of a, an, an insensitive band-aid to somebody else's deep pain, right? Like we, we, we become, you know, like Job's miserable counselors where we just kind of slap a Bible verse on somebody else's pain in order to feel better. Um, and yet God works all things together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose is absolutely true uh, for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And so, so in the book, I talk especially about that word together, right? Where it says God works all things together for good. And um, you know, if you think about my favorite pastry, it's banana bread. Uh, and 
I love I love that they call it bread, um, so that you can think you're eating bread instead of cake. Um, that's right. I mean, it's, it really is cake. It's cake, uh, right? But they call it bread, so I love that they, you know, make you feel a little bit better by naming it that. It feels healthier than it is. It sounds healthier than it is. But here's how. Here's the secret ingredient to banana bread, which I think provides Not a good banana. Pitch. It's a rotten banana. It's not just a banana. Oh, it I've never made it. Rotten. Really? Yes. You have to leave the banana out until it becomes, you know, black. The skin becomes black and then you peel it and it's nasty, right? You would never put it in your mouth. It would probably make you sick if you ate it by itself. And yet that rotten banana is the magic ingredient that that brings out the flavor and, and creates the moisture in banana bread that make it what it is. But it's not by itself. It, it, it works together with the salt and the flour and the eggs and the other ingredients that, that, um, that go in with it, right? And so, so I think that's a picture. It, like, let's just say our suffering is like the rotten banana in our lives. Wherever it came from, um, that banana or, or that, that suffering is an ingredient, um, uh, that God repurposes, right? Um, you know, the Bible talks about, you know, what, what Satan and what ill-intended people mean for evil. God, God turns it into good, right? Um, and, and so, you know, our suffering is an ingredient that is there that God makes the best of, right? So, so I used to, I used to have, there's this guy in our church before they moved, um, and he was a master chef at a restaurant. Like this is the kind of person who could turn a can of Chef Boyardee into a five-star meal. I mean, that's a little bit of an exaggeration, but he could take anything and turn it into a, a delicious masterpiece. And I think that's a picture of what God is like. He can take any ingredient, any raw material, and and turn it into a masterpiece, right? Um, I mean, our lives are like that, right? We're sinful people. We're broken. We're damaged. We're dying. And and God is turning us into, you know, C.S. Lewis's weight of glory paints a great picture of this. Like, like if you were to see any of us in our future state, you would be tempted to get on your knees and worship um, because of where God's taking our messy lives, right? And so... Whether or not God is the one who, you know, orchestrates suffering, causes it, allows it, um, we know two things. Number one, he hates it. He doesn't want it for us. I mean, Jesus weeps at, at the tomb of his friend Lazarus. He gets angry at the tomb of his friend Lazarus, not at Lazarus, not at the people mourning, but at death itself. He's angry. Because death and suffering do vandalism against human beings. And he loves human beings. So we know that. He hates suffering. He's against it. And he fights it. Uh, and, and he will ultimately end it. And, and mysteriously, that word again, one of the ingredients that God uses to produce that glory and greatness in, in, you know, for, for the future of his children and even in the present is our suffering. Um, so in, in Romans 5, same book, right, as Romans 8, 28, 
where it says we rejoice in our sufferings. It doesn't say we rejoice over our sufferings, like we don't like our sufferings, we don't enjoy them, but in them and through them, we rejoice because suffering will produce perseverance, which will produce character, you know, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control comes through comes through suffering. I mean, it, that's a botanical metaphor, right? Where, where when, God, when God talks about character, he talks about fruit. And fruit only, you know, optimizes on the tree or the bush when, when, it's, when the branches are pruned. And when it goes through seasons of dormancy through the wintertime, which you in California maybe not, wouldn't, wouldn't we don't uh, know experience what, dormancy as much. Never heard of that. But right, like our grass <laughs> right now looks dead in this, but, but it's not dead. It's dormant. And, and, and in the spring, it's going to come alive in this plush green, you know, reality. And, and, and you know, God's producing that character and, and hope, you know, which promises a future that C.S. Lewis is de- describes in such a wonderful way where he says, heaven will work backward and turn even our agony into a glory. And, and he goes on to say that, that, that because we suffered so much in you know this area or that area it will only serve to amplify the joy when the suffering is eliminated it's like waking up from a nightmare right like like let's say you lose your favorite loved one in in a nightmare and then you wake up and there they are you know celebrating (laughs) christmas morning and you you you're you're that much more appreciative of them having had the nightmare that then you would never having had the nightmare because you, you've gotten them back from something that was terrible. And so I, th- I think suffering is going to work like that, that eventually our experience of very real suffering in this life is going to experience be experienced as a nightmare that we've been awakened from in glory. And so that's a lot. Um, I mean, it's a lot more than you asked, but... No, no, this is good. And you cover some of this in your book, it sounds like. Yes, the book is all awesome. about that. Awesome. Mm-hmm. Do you do you get into in Romans eight twenty eight where it says God works out together, you know, all things for the good, singular good, which is then expressed in the next verse, which is to be made into the image of a son. Do you cover that in the book? Um, in a manner of speaking, yes. Okay. okay. I mean, it's not a book on Romans eight, but but okay. it includes <laughs> you know those themes. Yeah. Or interwoven yes. throughout, for sure. Because I part of the reason I bring that up is because I think sometimes this mysterious nature of our journey of faith, this uncharted journey, journey that includes suffering, is producing in us the fruit. Right? It's is actually molding us and creating us, chiseling away right our brokenness, um, and making us more and more beautiful in, in the image of Christ. Um, and I think that's what the two passages together, they say that. I think sometimes what happens is we pull one off on its own. Um, and we miss the, the beautiful thing that God's doing in us. That's right. Context yes. is part of text, somebody yes. <laughs> told me once. I like that. Yeah. I like that. Well, I can't wait to read your book. Thank you, Scott, for pouring yourself. Like you said, writing is not something that you saw yourself doing or it's something you had to learn to do. Well, you've learned well. Uh, God has definitely made you into a writer. I've enjoyed every one of your books. I have them all in my library, oh, thank you, and Ines. I encourage people so to read them. Uh, and because um, I, you have, you're so wise and you're so thoughtful in what you do, and I'm excited that you're going to share your journey on this as well. Very thank cool. you. Very, Very cool. kind, Ines. Very um, mutual. 
<laughs> well, I'm still trying to write my first one. My goodness, I'm working on it. I'm trying to I'm trying to release it this next year. So, well, if it's anything like you teach, um, it, it's going to be good. Uh, so, you're so kind. Look forward to Thank that. Thank you. Well, for our listeners, as we close, um, those who might feel on this journey of faith, maybe discouraged or distant from God, or maybe worse yet, maybe a sense of apathy on their journey of faith. Um, all of this, I, you know, I, I go back from one of the books I read on the spiritual journey that refers to it as a wall. Uh, these people who might feel that they're standing before a wall on their journey of faith, and they don't know how to get through this wall. What word of encouragement would you give them from your years of experience as a pastor, but also on your own journey of faith? A couple of things. I mean, one, this is the great news. We move away from God all the time, but he never moves away from us. And, and, and so, you know, he's, he's, he's just as there uh, with us and for us in those dry, apathetic, disoriented seasons as he is when we're on a mountaintop. He's, he's, he never leaves us, never forsakes us. That's a promise. It's like it says in the Psalms, his goodness and his mercy follow us all the days of our lives. And so even if we're running in another direction, he's, he's following us. We can't get away. It's like that children's book, The Runaway Bunny. Great, you know, kind of illustration of, of God's pursuing love. So, he, you know, even when we're in those seasons, he's not budging. He's not distancing himself from us. Um, the other part too, like if there's this desire, maybe with a new year, I don't know when this is going to drop, but yes, in January, yes. As we talk right now, you know, the new year is around the corner, and a lot of people are going to be kind of reassessing their lives, like we do at the end of the year and the beginning of a new one. And and so maybe even from that dry, apathetic place, you want something different. You want something more than what is. And you know, the great news is wherever you've left off, or or maybe where you never picked up in the first place you can always start now um, without any guilt or shame or regret. You can always start now. You don't have to make up for lost time. You just begin again today. His mercies are new every day. Um, he gives us a reset every morning when we wake up. And, um, you know, I, the encouragement that I would offer is like, let's say you're one of those people who are like, you know what, I'm going to get back in the Bible and I'm going to get back in the church um, next year. And, and I want to say those are probably two of the greatest, smartest, wisest, best decisions that you can make. If you really want to get out of an apathetic funk, you're not created to walk with God by yourself. Nobody is created to do that. Um, and you're not created to walk with God without God's word. And so if, if, if you could make the simple commit commitment, whether you feel like it or not, just like you did studying because you, you, you wanted the grade, right? Even when you didn't feel like studying, you wanted to go to a party or you wanted to sleep, but you studied instead because you had a, you had a goal in mind. So let's say your goal is flourishing. You want to flourish. You don't want to be apathetic anymore. You don't want to be bored with things that matter anymore. Um, do two things. Be fully present with the local church every single week, unless you're sick. Um, but even then, now you can you can be present online. But but don't don't go don't be online. We can be in person and when it's safe. Um, be fully present with the local church every single week and and have a smaller group of people that you can process you know church life with and sermons and stuff. 
and be fully present with Jesus every single day with the scripture. Here, here's the promise that we have from scripture about itself, that the gospel is power. It is the power of God. And even when we don't feel powerful as we take in the scriptures, and, and, and there is a power that's at work um, that, 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 that God assures us is there. You know, it's, you know, I, I, Dallas Willard from, is, was, is from your, you know, from your state, right? And he's a big spiritual formation guy, right? And, and you know, spiritual formation is just all about rhythms, it's, 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 we become what we commit ourselves to. And so if my primary commitment is to get through a Netflix series at least once a week, I'm going to be formed by that. I'm going to be shaped like that, um, by that. If, if, if my commitment is to be formed in the likeness of Christ and I do all these things, uh, you know, if, if I develop the rhythms of my life around work and Sabbath and life in a local church and, and, and taking in scripture and, and meaningful spiritual conversations with, with fellow Christians and, you know, engaging meaningfully with my city, with my work, with, with my neighbors by loving them well, uh, as the scriptures direct me to do over time, I'm going to be formed into a flourishing person in the same way that eating healthy and exercising on a regular basis, whether I feel like it or not over time, it will start to feel more natural and, and more motivational over time, and I will find myself becoming more healthy when I, you know, when I eat more fish than I do burgers, and when I, when I exercise more than I watch, you know, binge, you know, Netflix or scroll through social media, right? It's just a fact that health happens through rhythms in the same, and it works the same way with, with spiritual life, just as well as it does friendship between people, right? It has to be nurtured and cultivated, and eventually it starts to become second nature. But, but that initial investment of, you know, of the healthy rhythms has to happen first. Beautiful. That's actually quite timely as we begin the year. So thank you. Thank you for that word of encouragement. Folks, I hope this has blessed you. It's blessed me to have this conversation with Scott. He's, he's a dear friend, someone I respect so much. I could sit here and talk forever. So do check out his website, scottsiles.com, right? And uh, check out his books, uh, listen to his sermons, uh, learn from this incredibly humble and intelligent man. I think you will be blessed. Uh, And again, thank you, Scott. Thank you for this time. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Ines. Say hey to all my friends at Mariners. Well, Andy, um, I really enjoyed speaking with Scott. What a gracious man to take the time to be with us in this conversation. Again, I have so much respect for him and for what he does uh, for his work, the writing. I can't believe a senior pastor can put out this many books, first of all. <laughs> Blows my mind. <laughs> uh, he's got a, you know, a very busy church. He preaches a lot. He is involved uh, with Q Ideas. That's actually how I met him. I met him through Gabe Lyons. Um, through the Q Ideas Conference. I actually heard him speak multiple times, and I thought, man, I like how you think. And and really how gracious he is and so, so honest with his own journey, which again, which is why I'm excited about his new book coming up. Now, in this conversation, as we were having this discussion about the mystery of faith, I was very interested to hear like how he experienced it. 
And it dawned on me, you know, this is one thing I knew about Scott, but I had forgotten until he brought it up, is that he he did grow up, and he admits that he grew up with a place of privilege, and that actually caused him some pain. I don't think we hear about those stories much, right? I mean, we hear stories of people who do not have privilege, did not have privilege, and therefore there's a pain, and that's so those are voices that are very uh, loud right now. But we don't hear a lot of voices of when it happens from someone who comes from privilege and is in struggles in that. So I was grateful that he shared a little bit about that. I thought it was refreshing to hear from that perspective. What do you think about that? Yeah, you know, I actually do have a lot of thoughts about that. I, Because um, personally, while I, I might not consider myself like a person of affluence in that way, like I lived very much of like a middle class Orange County life. That being said, middle class Orange County is affluent, massively globally speaking. And secondly, nationwide, it's also like affluent, therefore. So I think that's even just a good like self reflection and awareness piece of like, like, as much as I might not have thought about my upbringing as being affluent, while I didn't like live a contextually affluent life compared to like maybe my peers or other people around me, or like I could look at places like Newport Beach and like all these other places. I say that because going growing up, going to the beach all the time, it was like, oh, everyone drives like Ferraris and BMWs. I mean, you saw like that level of like kind of like big material affluence. Um, whereas I, I felt like I was scrappy in the way that I experienced my the the way that I was raised and the things that I did, but. Overall, in a bigger conversation, I definitely, I think, grew up in a place of affluence and definitely had a spiritual crisis. And um, in my case, though, I, I can probably relate that more to feelings of indifference for the color of my skin related to like my own, a lot of the other things, like also being really short growing up amidst people who aren't. I mean, it's, it's interesting how much that does affect your sense of belonging, your sense of being liked, your sense of like normality. Um, there's a lot of that that plays into young people's lives and how they view the world and how they think that they're viewed in the world. And so, you know, I, you know, my spiritual crisis was very much like, a combination of almost recognizing privilege and not, and then being someone who didn't necessarily benefit from it amidst like an affluent context. And I've shared this on the show before as it relates to, you know, one of my friends who was a pastor's kid who everyone thought he was kind of like the greatest thing in the world. And, and Scott kind of talked about this on the outside, how everything looks perfect. And yet on the inside, there's all this stuff going on. And I, I kind of had a window into his life that was outside of all of our church life in which I'm like, this kid is chaos. You know, it's like, in fact, he's like a leader of chaos, like at our school and the things that he does and in our, our friend groups. I mean, it's like, it's not at all what the adults around me and the Christian adults around me think of him. And so that, that, inst that began to instigate a spiritual crisis because it was like, I'm sorry, this is supposed to be the teenage image of what Jesus is supposed to look like when I can clearly testify that like, there is a duality here that is not lined up. And so that that began to just kind of completely disrupt a lot of like my kind of then faith upbringing in that kind of sense, you know. So this is all of my around starting at the age of probably 13, going all through high school, observing all of this until end of high school, where then like my my trust of like organized religion, as I called it at the time, um, did not seem to provide the the benefits and the promises that it seemed to offer and so which was really kind of the crux of my probably earliest you know phase of deconstruction if you will with all of that and so um yeah i didn't i thought that 
that is an interesting note. We don't hear about those stories as much. And um, because I think I think that requires you guys did talk about this. It requires a certain amount of self-awareness. Right. Yes. Yeah. And I think that what you you know, what you guys mentioned um, and but that was connected to your guys's dialogue about the question of like, why, you know, why as Christians do we seem you know, meaner and harder on each other, you know, kind of in our current society, if we have theological disagreements, we're not on the same aisle of theology or whatever, uh, where we kind of expect that we should be being meaner to non-Christians, or it seems we're more gracious to non-Christians. Um, but, you know, it's it's funny, I thought that was an interesting conversation, because um, in the way that uh, a, a, mar- a marriage is a hard one for me. I try I, in my mind. I was kind of connecting it to that. But the way I see it is that like, I think the gospel gives us the opportunity to be a blessing and offer and mimic kindness to stranger and to the non-Christian. So in a way, I'm kind of like, does it then seem like we're doing what we're supposed to be doing? If that it seems like we're actually kinder to non-Christians than not versus we actually have grounds to hold each other accountable as Christians and draw us through the tensions that help us arrive at then our reflection of what Jesus should look like in society. So I almost don't have a problem as much that we might have very large public disagreements from Christian to Christian, because I, I think we do need to air out some of those big differences and kind of work through those types of things. And I think it's okay that they happen in the secular public sometimes. So I think we need that outside eye to, to see the things in the blind spots that maybe we don't. And so... But I don't know that we should ever not be kind to one another. So I, I do agree, agree that. that we should yeah. hold each other accountable. And and it is biblical. Paul talks about it. Uh, we, we shouldn't be judging those outside. They're not... They're not putting their faith in Jesus, but we should judge our brother and sister um, in a sense that we hold each other accountable. But there nowhere does it say, don't be kind. Right. Right. Yes, correct. And, 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 when, and especially when we take it to a civil discourse, uh, kindness is even more important because when you're opening it up for outsiders to hear that conversation, that's really oftentimes should be a one-on-one or small group conversation in, in the intimacy of trust and um and a willingness to hear someone's heart, the minute you make it public, I think you have to be much kinder because, yeah, because I think we're modeling. We're now modeling kindness, not just being kind to others, but we're modeling kindness, and we don't do a really good job at that, I don't think. Yeah, yeah, I, I would definitely get behind and advocate kindness, kindness no matter what. Um, and at the same time, though, I, I think I do, I do feel good about... Um, about acknowledging like, you know, that, that some of these big argumentative topics like, you know, can can be held publicly. I mean, they were. I mean, that's the thing. It's like in a very Jewish Roman, you know, controlled culture, much of these conversations were public conversations. You know, it was it was ways of helping to Many of Jesus's were conversations mm-hmm. were public, right? Yep. Totally. On the public 100%. square. Yep. Yep. So, you know, I don't... And sometimes not so nice. (laughs) Yeah. And also, and sometimes not so nice. And and that's the thing. Like, obviously, there's a lot of subjectivity to what we, how we observe, like, niceties and kindness and respect and and all of those kinds of things. And there's a lot of, like, cultural importances, that cultural aspects we have to remember and keep as important and contextual to that type of thing. But as I think we're saying... What Jesus has presented us with through the through the gospel is that you know kindness is actually this vehicle for expressing respect and love, and so it's that if we really believe that we're shaped in that way and that that is a fruit of our life, then like 
you know, we sh- we're going to be able to have these conversations well. And I agree there, there is a lot of unkind things that are happening I mean, generally in our culture. And yes, it is a, a bit, it's disappointing when we do see it happen, you know, for those of us that, that believe the same things. Um, but again, like, the, I think the idea that like, oh, well, it should be the opposite. We should see the most kindness expressed to Christian to Christian versus like from those two outside the church. I'm like, I, I would say that's not theologically I true. That. Yeah. So that, um, yeah. So I, I thought that was just a, an interesting. We're in agreement yeah. there. <laughs> exactly. You yeah. know, I was thinking if you, if you can't say what you're saying publicly to a person face to face, that's the test, mm-hmm. you know, because mm-hmm. I do think we get, we take on liberties when we're doing these things you know, especially via social media and that this connection that allows us to say things that honestly, I don't think some of these people talk like that in person to someone. Mm, Yeah, Um, I think, yeah. I have a hard time believing they do. (laughs) They wouldn't have a single friend. Oh, yeah, I I agree with that. I think the data (laughs) has proven that, that it's just the the human interaction face-to-face looks significantly different than what social media has shown us over time. And so, um, yeah, that's very true. And that's a great you know, conversation for later for advocating like what what happens in in real relationship or real like kind of like the actual human touch interaction point and what makes that different versus just reading each other's identity through through the alphabet <laughs> through yes, through what's typed true. on the screen, right? So um, exactly. Now the other conversation we had was about the mystery of faith, and you know, I feel like <clears throat> in my conversation with with Scott. He acknowledged, obviously, that there is a mystery of faith. And and because it's a mystery, it's very hard to define. It's hard to give it language. Um, <clears throat> but I believe that we 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 agreed together that, that there is a mystery on this journey and that maybe we have been too reliant on formulas uh, for this journey of faith. And I've been reflecting more on that conversation. I've been thinking a lot about the world we live in now, all the the complexity that we're living in, how it's evolving into higher and higher complexity. We're, we're deeply connected worldwide, which means that we have access to the crises that happen thousands of miles away, the faith journeys that people are having thousands of miles away, the good things that are happening, all these things we are deeply connected with. So everything is, is much harder to put into a single formula or a simple way to viewing things. And one of them is the journey of faith. So when we are when we are living out our faith with access to hundreds, if not thousands, of pastors online and podcasts and books and different opinions through all the different social medias, as we just talked about, how people are openly sharing all these kinds of thoughts, it immediately becomes a greater mystery, right? Because you're already we're being exposed to so many different ideas, experiences, reflections. And uh, it's natural to feel a little bit lost on this journey um, unless you close yourself out altogether. And I, I do think that's, that's sometimes what people do. They go, okay, well, I'm not going to listen to anything. I'm just going to close myself out. And anyway, that was what, one of the reflections I've been having about that um, I, I was grateful that he acknowledged that as a pastor of a Presbyterian church, which... Um, obviously can be a little bit more Calvinistic and, and right. And um, he acknowledged there is a mystery. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I was grateful for that. Yeah. I think, um, you know, some of the, the wisest advice I've received, like usually, usually comes from those um, where instead of answering a question directly their you know, their response is more of an antidote from experience and, and observance. 
And Jesus is like this, right? You know, it's just if, if Pharisees asked him a question or even his own disciples asked him a question. I mean, like, unless it was a very kind of clairvoyant, like kind of poignant, like, you know, this is what's going to happen if you chase that rabbit. You know, it's like there, and there was a couple of those, you know, um, but the larger like narrative is just is the extension of like there is you have agency of thought like he gave a lot of agency even to the pharisees and even to the disciples like think about this you know this and yet there's something else here you know and, and it's just and he would and even then extend prophecy to reveal it it's like that pro that is yet to be known or that is yet to come there's you know a lot of those different things and so jesus himself is was even presenting mystery as a as a response to questions you know it was never like that amount of certainty was never offered. Um, it's just we we reflect back and see everything he did as 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 the most final and most certain thing that could have ever been done. And I do think that's true in some cases. Um, so, however, though, I think to your point that it can be exhausting and, and depressing to think about all the minutia and complexity of like that 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 global extension of communication, right? Because I think as very communicable um, uh, human beings more communication does not equal higher value of life. You know, it's it's how we communicate. Or clarity. Or clarity. It's usually how we communicate with whom we actually communicate with that seems to produce the most fruit in life. And so that's where we, we still have agency and selectivity of how we go about that kind of process. And um, I've never been one to be very reductive. It's just that I think like even in, in the words of Jesus of like, you know, when you're asking the question of like, who am I supposed to love and how am I supposed to do it? He reminds us that you'll always have, you know, the widows, the children, you know, and those that are downtrodden and the homeless. It's just like, these will always be among you. Like there's no, almost like this isn't going away. You know, the burden of realization of, of the hardships of the world are not going away. This is the design of a fallen and broken world, you know, but yet like you were called to be kind, you know, to love, you know, to, to offer patience where patience shouldn't be offered, to offer grace where it shouldn't be offered. I mean, all of these types of things is, is it's how we do those things that are obviously nuanced and have their complexities. But I think that the invitation to do those things is actually pretty clear. And so it's, it's pretty easy though, to stack ourselves with all of that and, and make it, make it too hard on ourselves. And I think the beautiful mystery for me is always wondering if I love this thing when maybe I shouldn't or it's really hard to, what could come out of it? You know, that's like, to me, that's the most exciting part of the journey is being tested by those circumstances and recognizing those things versus just knowing for sure, well, if I do this, that's what's going to happen. I'm more disappointed when I go into a situation believing that versus here is an outrageous opportunity to love, to show kindness, to show generosity. And I'm very curious is what's going to happen um, if I do that. Yeah, I, I do think that the <clears throat> there is a positive of the mystery as well, or even the complexity, and that is that it drives us to a deeper dependence on God. And for example, there are many times where I think Jesus did make things more mysterious or even harder to accept, right? There were some things people would say, this is a hard saying, this is really hard to accept. But that kind of leaned people towards him. And I think it leans us closer to God and depending on again, because it's not complex to him. Uh, he is sovereign overall. And so <clears throat> there is a there is a beauty when we when we open up ourselves to see 
the bigger picture and allow ourselves to be a little uncomfortable so that we can be more independent, more dependent, excuse me, because we are, we tend to be highly independent, I think, and that is one of our human brokenness that we tend to break away from God and try to not depend on him. So in one way, I feel like the mystery of the journey of faith, even the mystery of scripture, which Scott and I talked about, how he said, you know, every time I read it, I see more. That mystery makes us keep coming back for more, for more dependency, for more intimacy, for more understanding, um, which I think is a good thing. I think if we have it figured out, we don't need God. We don't need the Bible. We don't need, you know, right? We have yeah, it figured out. Of course. Yeah. Yep, of course. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, really, uh, really grateful for that conversation with you and Scott. Well, okay, hey, and I will never see banana bread the same because now I know how it's made. <laughs> that's right. That's <laughs> so, right. <laughs> finishing with that. But in fact, um, Kaylee taught me how to make uh, pancakes with oatmeal and bananas, and we use also a very ripe banana, and it totally makes sense how something that would normally go in a trash can make something beautiful, and that is one thing I'm super grateful for, that God does make beautiful things out of us. So closing in that... Thank you, Andy, for this time of reflection. Thanks again, friends, for joining us for this podcast. I look forward to our next conversation. And in the meantime, may the peace and grace of Jesus Christ be with you today and all week long. God bless you. Thank you for listening to Uncharted Podcast with Inez Franklin. Learn more about Inez at unchartedpod.com. Follow Inez Journey on Instagram at Inez Franklin. Sign up for our email list to receive direct access to online experiences and more. Thanks for listening and join us again next time.